I'm very excited today to have a new friend of mine, Jay Patel, join us today. Um, so Jay is an associate professor of medicine, trained in pulmonary and critical care medicine at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Actually uh, came to know and learn of Jay because of his expertise in nutrition. He did a fellowship um, with Nestle in nutrition. And so he has an expertise in something that I know very little about and something that I think all of us kind of are uh, a bit remiss in, in knowing, but that we certainly deal with every day, all day in the ICU which is nutrition. So I'm very happy for Dr. Patel to be here today talking about nutrition. Um, and today his talk is nutrition therapy and critical illness. Why, when, where, and what do I feed my critically ill patient? Something that is a daily issue I think, again, all of us deal with. So um, uh, Jay, without further ado, please share with us all of your knowledge. Thank you very much, um, Dr. Levine. And I really appreciate um, the opportunities to speak to all of you today. Um, I wanna kind of keep this as more of a, a discussion. And so if at any point you feel like Hey man, I just didn't get that, or um, I want you know I don't understand what you said, or if you have a burning question, please just interject. It's, it's really important. Um, I don't want you to walk away, you know, with any lingering questions. And even if that means I don't know the answer to that question, um, at least I'll certainly have it in mind to at least get back to you. So so please do stop me and ask if you have questions. Um, I don't have any disclosures, and I and I'm sorry I forgot to add my my slide here on that. But here are the objectives of this talk. We're going to describe the rationale for feeding in the early acute phase of critical illness. And I'm gonna to describe to you what, what I mean by that early acute phase. We're gonna talk a little bit about when and where. So we'll ruminate on the optical timing and dose of nutrition in acute critical illness. And there are the subtopics that you can see there. And then finally, um, if we have uh, time, I certainly don't wanna go over time, but we'll speculate on the role and optimal dose of protein uh, in critical illness. So there's a, really a ton to unpack here. And so let's kind of get started here. Let's, let's kind of anchor on this case. And this is something that you, may see all the time, because I know this is something that I see all the time, but we have a 50-year-old man with esophageal cancer who was admitted after a witnessed aspiration, leading to pneumonia with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure and septic shock. Now, all you know is that he's had poor oral intake with a 10-pound weight loss over the previous two months. And then you do some searching and you see that his BMI has gone down from, say, 28 down to 24. Okay, So here's a question just to think about. Uh, for the why components of this talk. What are drivers of multiple organ dysfunction syndrome? And of course, you know, please feel free to choose more than one answer, but just take about five to 10 seconds to take a look at these choices and, and think about them for just a minute. Choice number six is okay too. Okay, perfect. So here are the three trajectories that our critically ill patients often take, okay? So this is trajectory number one. We see this every once in a while. It's somebody who comes to the ICU and within 12 to 24 hours, they just succumb to a fulminant death. There's nothing, whether it's fluid resuscitation, whether it's vasoactive support, inotropic support, um, mechanical ventilatory support that, that is going to keep that person um, going and ultimately they really succumb. And I would, I would submit to you that nutrition, at least macronutrients, probably don't have much of a role to play for this trajectory right here. The second patient is probably the most common phenotype where they spend a few days, maybe a week in the ICU, but they recover, right? And that's gonna be the basis for really this talk here 
And then for the sake of completeness, we have this third you know, phenotype as well. And these are the patients that of course um, survive beyond the first week of ICU, but they kind of have an undulating uh, course, which ultimately culminates in like an indolent death. They might go to a LTAC, they might go to a SNF, but they come back and they kind of waste away in front of you over the course of multiple you know, admissions. My colleagues at the University of Florida would call this the persistent inflammatory and immunocompromised uh, uh, state where you see uh, re recurrent pneumonias, you see significant catabolism uh, in these individuals. And again, they, they kind of waste away in front of you. We won't focus on this patient population. We'll focus on the most common trajectory, which is trajectory number two. So what's really nice about the European Society of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition's 2018 guideline is they defined the phases of critical illness. So they defined it as the acute phase of critical illness and then the late phase. The acute phase can be divided up into what's called the early acute phase and the late acute phase. These days that you see listed here are merely placeholders. In reality, we just don't know when patients transition between the acute phases and then certainly between the acute and late phases. We might have some idea based on some clinical parameters. So for instance, as your patient is convalescing, as the vasopressor requirements are coming down, maybe the FIO2 and PEEP are getting better, you could perhaps you know, think at that point, oh, I wonder if my patient's starting to get better and maybe they'll start to transition between some of these two phases. Nonetheless, let's focus on the acute phase, which some might call the first week of critical illness and ask, what happens during the acute phase that nutrition has the potential to prevent, modify, or ameliorate? And I will start with these two things because I think these are the things that all of us, even our trainees, are aware of. We see a hypercatabolic state, and then we see a significant uh, uh, caloric deficit as a result of that. So let's look and see what happens uh, in each of these states and the potential consequences of these states. So it turns out that large amounts of energy are consumed during processes like gluconeogenesis, revving up of the quarry cycle, lipolysis, and there's other factors that increase energy expenditure are, include things like pain, fever, respiratory distress, agitation. So if we look at this graph here, on the x-axis are just various conditions, and on the y-axis is resting energy expenditure. So homeostasis would imply that resting energy expenditure is about 100% of what it should be. So major surgery, for example, would increase it by about 130%. Severe trauma and complicated medical surgical infections that require ICU, the REE can go up to 140, for example, and the severe trauma uh, up to 150, and then major burns, you know, in whom resting energy expenditure can exceed 160% of homeostasis. And this REE elevation can last up to three weeks, even after managing the inciting event that leads to critical illness. Now, this is all associative data, but these four studies have demonstrated associations between a negative energy balance and complications, including ICU-acquired weakness, infections, pressure sores, where patients go after they leave um, the ICU. But the idea here is, is that the greater energy debt is that's acquired, the more associative complications occur, including again, infections, pressure sores, and then a, a ICU acquired weakness. So these are the obvious consequences of the early phase of critical illness. And I wanna kind of leave off on these two for just a minute because I wanna spend a few minutes talking about 
one of my favorite topics, which is gut dysfunction. And so gut dysfunction is something that may be a little underappreciated as a consequence of uh, early phase of critical illness. So in 2007, Clark and Cooper Smith introduced something called intestinal crosstalk, whereby there's a partnership between epithelium, immune tissue, and the gut microbiota. And it turns out that each element modifies the other via crosstalk signaling. Now, I have to admit, when I first read this literature, I thought I was reading sci-fi. Now, of course, I'm certainly oversimplifying this, but let's take a deeper dive into what is meant by crosstalk. The purpose of crosstalk signaling is to maintain epithelial barrier function. So maintain gut epithelial barrier function. And that epithelial barrier function, as you all know, is composed of three layers. The first is this biochemical layer of mucus. The second is a physical barrier of columnar epithelial cells that are really bound by a tight junction. And tight junction proteins lead to that, uh, that uh, bounding, if you will. And the third is an immunologic barrier that's rich in immune cells. You've heard of Peyer's patches and GALT, and it turns out that more than 80% of immune cells throughout the body get their, quote, education, unquote, in GALT and Peyer's patches. And so what happens when these interactions uh, go awry in critical illness? So here's an example of crosstalk. There's something called molecule-associated molecular proteins. That's in this red square that you see here on the top left of the screen. So it turns out that when these MAMPs interact with epithelium, now again, these MAMPs aren't the actual organism, but they might be pieces of the organism like flagella, for example. But when they interact with say intestinal epithelial cells, they increase tight junction protein production, which is meant to again, maintain that barrier function. When they interact with tannin cells, there's increased defense in production as well. So it, it thwarts some of the bad bacteria as a result of increased defense in productions. When they interact with goblet cells, more mucus is secreted, which then can enhance that physical barrier that we mentioned earlier. And then when they interact with things like toll-like receptors in the immunologic network in the subepithelium, T cells differentiate to promote more of an anti-inflammatory response that comes again directly from the gut. So what happens in critical illness? In critical illness, there's a breach of this epithelial barrier function. As a consequence, the mucosal layer thins, there's reduced defense in productions, there's impaired tight junction protein productions, and some of this is due in part to things like cytokines, like TNF-alpha, for example, and then repair mechanisms are compromised. And then enterocytes, instead of flourishing, um, apoptose. The second thing that happens at the level of the gut is that the microbiota change. So the emerging dysbiosis project looked at changes in gut microbiome at the onset of critical illness, which they defined as within 48 hours of critical illness. And again, at ICU discharge or day 10, whichever came first from 115 adults who were mechanically ventilated for at least 72 hours. So what they did was they compared it to what's called the American Gut Project, which you see on the screen right here. And what you can see here is that there's a predominance of green and blue. And this green and blue represents healthy bacteria, which are Firmicutes and Bacterioides. And look what happens within 48 hours of admission. Now these were stool samples, of course, that were, that were taken. And 
not only did it happen at admission, but it persisted to discharge, that now you see a predominantly red spikes and the area on the curves here is really red. And so now you see proteobacteria, which are predominantly things like gram negative rods that emerge at the level of the gut. So this dysbiosis occurs for a variety of reasons. Let's look at some of those reasons and at least try and categorize them. Now, in general, the gut microbiota changes because of what you see in columns two, three, and four from left to right. Microbiota immigration patterns change, the elimination patterns change, but more importantly, the environmental growth conditions change. And so here are the pathophysiologic processes that occur during critical illness that lead to some of these. Now, I'm not going to read all of them, but let's look at like one example here. During gut hypoperfusion and impaired mucosal integrity, what does that do? Well, that leads to increased elimination of bacteria uh, via the mesenteric lymphatics. In other words, bacteria can translocate, right, from the gut to systemic circulation. At the same time, it leads to increased mucosal inflammation, and that leads to a shift from commensal or healthy bacteria to dysbiotic or these proteobacteria, as we talked about. You can see the other pathophysiologic processes in this table, and I will share this PowerPoint at some point for you to review as well. But what about our interventions? Our interventions can also alter the gut microbiota. Now, I can't read all of them here for the sake of time, but look at, let's look at one of them, gastric acid suppression, for example. It leads to decreased elimination of bacteria from the upper GI tract, and it can promote acid intolerant uh, bacteria. Now, if you look at this list of other, other things here, if you look at our patients, for example, perhaps with the exception of parental nutrition, our patients receive almost all of these things on a daily basis. And it turns out that the greater severity of illness promotes the emergence of pathogens capable of dysregulating the epithelial barrier function. So look at the bottom right here for a second. I've highlighted here in red rectangle. Um, the colonizing pathogens become opportunistic. In other words, these pathogens sense that the host can no longer obtain the resources necessary to remain healthy and gut bacteria induce cytokine release via altered immune responses, which then leads to systemic inflammation responding to the bacteria, which are ordinarily not adhere to or invade uh, through the epithelium. Now, this is one of my favorite um, animal studies, but what did this study show? So look what they did. They took pseudomonas from a sham operation, and then they took pseudomonas where they induced inflammation, and they did it via a 30% hepatotectomy. Then they, they grew the pseudomonas uh, on a plate. And if we look at the left side for just a second, that pseudomonas that they obtained from the sham operation, they injected it into healthy mice and 100% of the mice lived. When they took the pseudomonas from an inflamed body or inflamed gut, they grew it and then they injected it into mice. 100% of those mice actually died. And then when they looked at the pseudomonas under the microscope, what they found was that there was a change in the morphologic appearance. So that top one that says smooth, that came from the sham surgery. The bottom one that says wrinkled, that came from the hepatotectomy, which was associated with a tendency to elicit a pro-inflammatory response. In fact, the authors were actually, who looked at this said, it almost looks like these pseudomonas are ready to fight. They're ready to get their way out of the gut because they realize the resources are completely depleted. Again, to me, it read like a sci-fi novel. 
So in summary, the epithelial barrier function is disrupted in critical illness. We've already talked about the above components, the mucosal thinning, defenses, tight junctions, apoptosis, but you couple that with the emergence of a pathobiome and then that pathobiotic uh, bacteria lead to um, pro-inflammatory responses at the level of the gut. And this is at least in theory, what is contributing to multiple organ failure. So downstream organ dysfunction that is driven really by the gut motor being turned on. So let's take a moment now and just shift gears. Based on that background information of energy deficits, hypercatabolism, gut dysfunction, let's talk a little bit about the optimal timing and dose of nutrition in critical illness. So let's get back to our case for just a moment here. And now our patient has received about three liters of intravenous fluids. His blood pressure is 120 over 50, and he's on a norepinephrine infusion of 0.2 mics per kg per minute. So at this point, you're rounding with your team and you get to the GI component. And somebody might ask, guys, where do we deliver nutrition? Take a moment and just think about what you might do. Okay, so what do the guidelines say about the timing of nutrition? So it turns out that all major nutrition society guidelines, even the recent ESPN ones, fully support early EN in patients. And they do it for the gut benefits of early EN over early PN or nothing, for example. And early is defined as within 24 to 48 hours if we look across the societal recommendations, which I've highlighted here in red font. And I think we have ample data to say early EN is better certainly than no EN or late EN, with late being again defined as more than 48 hours. This is a meta-analysis of 13 trials, and all these trials were conducted between 1979 and 2012 that compared early to late or no EN. And it found that at least the risk of infection was much lower. 21 trials that describe mortality also found that there was an improvement in mortality with the use of early EN as compared to starting it after 48 hours. Now, I will submit to you that many of these trials did not include patients who were in circulatory shock, like our patients. So what is the value of early EN then on gut dysfunction? Excuse me, I contend that the mechanisms for benefits really are related to attenuating some of the gut dysfunction. So this data comes from the University of Michigan and preclinical and clinical data shows that um, early EN is associated with preserved epithelial barrier function. In fact, when they deprived some of these animal models of um, EN, there was a loss of intestinal epithelial barrier function. And other groups have demonstrated some of the same findings as well. And what about in terms of gut dysbiosis? Now, I will say that the greatest amount of dysbiosis that occurs is probably at the level of the cecal crypts. The cecal crypts is where we often see a significant proportion of of proteobacteria. But 
in these models, gut dysbiosis was shown to be reversed with just 20% enteral nutrition. Now, I'm certainly advocating here for early enteral nutrition, but some of you might be listening and reading the screen might say, well, wait a minute, this is a patient who's in shock on vasopressor. And some of you might pump the brakes a little bit and perhaps think, I just can't justify putting anything into a hot gut at this point, because the gut is certainly a risk of greater complications in individuals who are on norepinephrine. And so besides the vomiting, you know, besides the development of ileus, you know, the, the gravest consequence that we often worry about when we introduce enteral nutrition in a patient in shock is non-occlusive mesenteric ischemia, which can then progress to non-occlusive bowel necrosis. So the presence of nutrients can increase gut blood flow, which is termed postprandial hyperemia. But there's concern that ATP-dependent absorption of luminal nutrients in the hypoperfused gut exceeds the limits of cellular metabolism and can lead to cellular ischemia. In other words, you've already taken blood flow away from the splenic circulation merely as a result of being in circulatory shock and being on, say, norepinephrine. And when you put stuff into the gut that's already hypoperfused, you run the risk of ischemia. So at this point, if you're worried about introducing nutrients into a hypoperfused lumen, you may be considering parenteral nutrition, especially because this patient, as you saw, has some uh, pre-existing or maybe developing malnutrition. So even though the enteral route can maintain gut integrity and can reduce some of these uh, uh, inflammatory components, you might still be worried about the fact that your patient is in shock and you may still want to start some parenteral nutrition because it can provide calories and may increase protein synthesis. So let's pause for a second and ask, what's the role of parenteral nutrition in critical care. Again, this is an oversimplification, but it is generally used when EN cannot or will not be provided or when EN alone is providing insufficient support. We call number one exclusive EN and we call number two supplemental EN. So for the sake of this talk, let's just examine the use of exclusive PN by looking at two new trials. So these randomized control trials inform us for using exclusive PN in critical care. The top one is called the calorie study and the bottom one is called the Nutriria 2 trial. They were multi-center, very large uh, uh, trials and they're both pragmatic uh, designs. For the sake of this talk, I just wanna focus on Nutriria 2 because it actually enrolled patients who were in shock, kind of like our patients. And so here's the PICO question that this trial asked, in critically ill adult patients receiving mechanical ventilation for at least 48 hours and they're on vasopressor support, does intervention with early full-dose parenteral nutrition as compared to early full-dose enteral nutrition improve outcome of 28-day all-cause mortality? And here was a schema for their trial. Again, randomized about 1,200 patients uh, in each arm, and they did not measure gastric residual volumes. The first author of this paper also published a paper uh, earlier in JAMA that um, effectively debunked the need to measure gastric residual volumes. Nonetheless, it wasn't measured and parental nutrition could be added by day eight. And the PN group, they had to stay on it until they were off vasopressors for 24 hours and their lactate was under two. 
And so who were these patients? As you can see here, many of the patients look like patients you might see in your ICU. They were fairly sick. Their SOFA scores were 11. Um, you can see that 90 plus percent were medical uh, ICU patients. They were overweight, but not technically obese. And look at how many patients were in septic shock, about two thirds. And look at that norepinephrine dose for just a minute. This was in mics per kg per minute. We'll come back to that a little bit later as well. Okay, so pretty sick medical ICU patients, most who were in septic shock. And here are the results of this study. As you can see, the primary outcome, there was no difference in 28-day mortality. But here is where the complications, here are the complications of the study. There was more statistically significant bowel ischemia observed in the group that got early enteral nutrition as compared to parenteral nutrition. There was also a lot more colonic pseudo-obstruction that was observed uh, in this particular study. So here's a couple of take-home points, and then we'll see if we can appraise this study just a, uh, a little bit. There was no difference in the primary outcome of 28-day mortality using early PN versus early EN in mechanically ventilated patients with predominantly septic shock. There were more serious adverse events, GI-related adverse events, in the early enteral nutrition group. So the high rate of non-occlusive bowel necrosis made me scratch my head a bit. What was it about this study that led to so much more bowel, uh, bowel necrosis in those who got early EN? Now, this was a paper that we published um, uh, about a year ago. And what we did was we looked at all contemporary randomized controlled trials that included at least one arm that provided enteral nutrition to patients with circulatory shock and found that non-occlusive mesenteric ischemia and non-occlusive bowel necrosis incidence did not exceed 0.3%. Now, what I'm not showing you here is the retrospective and prospective observational data. And serendipitously or not, the uh, incidence of bowel necrosis in those studies was also 0.3%. So it made me ask, what was different about Nutria 2 that led to a statistically significant increase in complications in those receiving EN. And I think it was this right here. If you look at the bottom row, patients were on 0.5 and higher doses of norepinephrine. So at some institutions, 0.5 might con be considered a, you know, a ceiling dose of norepinephrine, but this was a fairly whopping dose of norepinephrine. This might be akin to pouring gasoline onto a spark that's, that's you know, occurring in the gut. So the adverse GI events may be related to EN dose rather than route, because remember, they were giving effectively full dose EN uh, as compared to, say, hypocaloric or lower dose EN, as we'll talk about later. And they were doing it without gastric residual volume while patients were on high dose norepinephrine. So I think more data are needed to compare different EN doses and explore mechanisms for outcome in hemodynamically unstable patients. Now, there was an ancillary study of the Nutria 2 trial, which compared, again, early EN to PN. And this study aimed to determine the effect of the route of nutrition on gut mucosa. They started to identify some of the gut-related benefits. And one of the ways they did this was by measuring plasma citrulline. Plasma citrulline is considered a marker of enterocyte mass and function. Let me orient you here to this graph. The white bars represent citrulline concentration for those who received early PN, and the gray bar for those who received early EN. And as you can see, by day three, 
plasma citrulline concentration was higher in the EN group as compared to PN, perhaps suggesting that early EN is associated with greater preservation of enterocyte mass and function. But this isn't to say lower doses can't do the same thing, and it's unclear if they can, while avoiding the complications that were observed in this particular study. So the question is, well, if not full dose EN, how much can we get away with to reap the gut-related benefits of enteral nutrition? So let's clarify some semantics for just a second. And you might have heard these terms um, both at conferences, perhaps on rounds, but trophic just means nourishment or growth. It's a low volume, often 10 to 30 cc's per hour of continuous feeding to nourish the intestinal mucosa. And this was described in animal models. Hypocaloric nutrition is that you get to less than 70% of goal calories. Mostly you reduce the calories, uh, the glucose related calories, but you maintain the high protein. Permissive underfeeding is you reduce the calories and the protein to 40 to 60% goal. And then of course, full calorie in most studies is 70 to 100% of whatever the prescribed uh, goal is. So we asked the question, we said, can we deliver smaller amounts of nutrition to mechanically ventilated patients with septic shock? So we conducted a pilot feasibility trial that compared early trophic dose EN to no EN in septic shock. The control group was no EN because um, there's a lot of equipoise still around starting enteral nutrition in patients with shock. Again, because there's concern for non-occlusive mesenteric ischemia and bowel necrosis. So here was our schema for how we randomized patients. We randomized them to get about 20 cc's per hour of an isocaloric feed, and that equated to less than 600 calories per day or no feeding until they're off vasopressors. And we did check gastric residual volumes, and if they exceeded 500, because at the time the data still recommended we check gastric residual volumes, we held EN. And here were our patients. Now there is an error that's being corrected by um, the journal that this was uh, published in, but our BMI was not 39, it was actually 29. And so that is an error that I have to, have to point out. Otherwise, if you look at the norepinephrine dose, the amount of IV fluids received, the time to first antibiotic, the other things that help enhance uh, outcomes in patients with septic shock, um, they were equal in both groups. The SOFA scores were uh, similar in both groups uh, as well. And so again, this was a pilot feasibility trial. We wanted to see that our protocol, we could accomplish it and we had a little contamination and we certainly did. But when we look at our other complications, interestingly, you can see that there was a lot more vomiting in the first 72 hours in those patients who didn't get early EN. And that was met towards a, with a trend towards statistical uh, significance. And you can certainly see in the first seven days, um, the, those who didn't get any early EN had uh, more vomiting. And we, we postulate that that may be due to loss of epithelial barrier function. So for example, if you get critically ill, your barrier function is gone, you don't get fed for a few days, and now you introduce nutrition uh, into your patient, um, the ability to process that nutrition may go down and you might uh, have more complications. What, the other thing that we found though was that we had zero intestinal ischemia, particularly if you look at the um, early EN group no bowel obstruction, and then no episodes of high gastric residual volume. I don't know what to make of this outcome, but we found more candida isolation in secondary cultures in those patients who had no 
enteral nutrition, perhaps suggesting that there may be more dysbiosis in patients who got no early EN, but that um, remains to be seen. So, so far we've talked about our hypothetical patient in circulatory shock where less may indeed be more, but what about the general ICU patients? So if we go back to guidelines for just a moment, you can see from the 2016 Aspen and Society of Critical Care Medicine guideline that they recommend either trophic or full dose EN in patients with ARDS and suggested those with high nutrition risk get the goal within 40, 24 to 48 hours. Now, what does that mean, high nutrition risk? It effectively is just saying that your patients are gonna come in malnourished or they're gonna have disease states that is going to lead to an acquired malnutrition. So maybe in some of those patients, you wanna try and get to goal calories a little bit faster. This was the guideline from five years ago, okay? And so since then, Let's look at all the data that have evaluated trophic EN. So here are two randomized control trials that have tested trophic dose EN. Again, 10 to 30 cc's an hour. The first was done to test the hypothesis that trophic would decrease GI complications for five days. And the second um, was the EDEN trial, very large study, 1,000 patients, to see if trophic EN acute lung injury would improve ventilator-free days as well. When these studies were put into a meta-analysis, a signal favoring trophic or full dose did not emerge here. So the next question is, what about hypocaloric EN? Again, we're still restricting calories, right? So less is more strategy. And since 2011, eight studies have compared some form of lower calorie to higher calorie, and they found no difference in outcomes. I must point out though, that there's heterogeneity between, of course, the studies. Some are single center studies that had emergency surgery patients. For example, the Charles study in the second row. Uh, some were multi-center uh, medical surgical patients as in the Rice study at the very bottom. Some gave just weight-based dosing. Some gave just 50% of their goal calories that were, that were dosed as well. But when these studies were put into a large meta-analysis, again, a signal did not emerge between low dose nutrition and higher dose nutrition. Now, recent large observational data suggests less calories. And you might be saying, well, why are you showing me observational data when you just got done showing me randomized control trial data? Um, this large observational data use indirect calorimetry to derive the resting energy expenditure in over 1,100 patients over 12 years who had more than a four-day ICU stay. And what they pretty much um, uh, uh, found, two things. First is that underfeeding and overfeeding are associated with harm, as you can see by this U-shaped curve here. And two, between those dotted red lines, those who achieved between 40 and 60% of goal calories had a better chance of 60-day survival. And I bring this up because they were more precise in determining energy uh, needs because they use indirect calorimetry in these patients. Now, when Zussman excluded those with ICU stay of less than two days or more than uh, 10 days, you can see that the two curves were almost superimposed on one another. And again, these were a mixed medical surgical group, about 43% surgical and 57% uh, medical. Of the surgical, about a fifth were trauma patients. There's other rationale that are forming for a less is more strategy in that early acute phase of critical illness. The first is 
feeding intolerance in the early acute phase of critical illness. We know, and multiple studies have shown that um, if you introduce too much nutrition in the early acute phase of critical illness, there's more intolerance. And, and intolerance is defined across studies um, by the development of vomiting, pneumonia, with, with subsequent aspiration pneumonia, ileus, uh, for example, diarrhea, for example. The second reason is there might be a lot of endogenous glucose production in critical illness. So gluconeogenesis is one of the hallmarks of critical illness, but as a result of that, if you add, it can lead to hyperglycemia if you add additional um, enteral nutrition, full dose, that is, on top of that, which may make uh, controlling hyperglycemia that much more difficult. The third one uh, is, little, is, is important. It's called refeeding syndrome, especially because we're taking care of a lot of cancer patients and their cancer patients are living a lot longer. They might acquire more malnutrition. Some might come in not eating for days. We've certainly seen that in our COVID population where they come in just uh, not eating for two to three days uh, because of a lack of appetite and introducing nutrition in them may increase the risk of refeeding syndrome. The fourth one is called mitochondrial failure. And so remember mitochondria are sensitive to increased oxidative stress, which is a you know, hallmark of critical illness. So if we aggressively feed in the early acute phase of critical illness, that may increase the mitochondrial workload. What in fact the mitochondria are dysfunctional leading to further dysfunction, oxidative stress, stress, uh, stress, which may lead to more multiple organ dysfunction. And then finally, this is a concept that I haven't grasped quite yet, but this is something called autophagy. But autophagy in general has two key functions. The first one is called the housekeeping function for remo removing unfolded proteins, viruses, and bacteria, and large organelles, um, which leads to degradation of protein for amino acid production. And then the second is that those amino acids are recycled to make ATP for energy. It's thought that too much feeding early or overfeeding can suppress this housekeeping mechanism and may en enhance oxidative stress. But, stress. but I, I, I think that additional data are certainly needed from a clinical perspective. Let's focus for just a moment on refeeding syndrome because there's data for this. Now, this was a multi-center RCT that randomized patients to restricted feeding or standard feeding for seven days. And the way they did that was they actually measured their phosphate levels within 72 hours of starting nutrition. About a third of patients were emergency and elective surgery combined, and two thirds were medical ICU patients. Um, less than 1% actually had uh, malnutrition at the time that they came in. And the mean time to getting nutrition before the study was about 1.4 days. So they did, they did start them early. But again, what they're doing is they're saying, should we give you a little bit or should we give you a lot to try and prevent refeeding syndrome as hallmarked by hypophosphatemia? And the primary outcome was days alive after ICU discharge at the 60-day follow-up. And so on the left-hand side, you can see how they slowly ramped up the calories in the blue line. This was the um, intervention group. And again, it was based on phos levels. So they, so they saw the phos levels dropping by increasing the nutrition, they drop the nutrition back down. And then the red line is standard. You can see that most patients got to goal between day one and day two of their full dose calories. On the right-hand side is the Kaplan-Meier curve. You can see a clear separation of groups when feeding was advanced slower. In other words, slower advancement of feeding during the first seven days of critical illness um, uh, led to more survival in this uh, RCT. And again, this was based on a serum 
phosphate level. And so in patients who have risk factors for refeeding syndrome, one thing that we do is we check the phosphate level a couple times a day. If the phosphate levels precipitously drop, we certainly replete that along with potassium and give back thiamine and mag, um, but then we, we cut back on our uh, nutrition prescription and go a little bit slower. So is the, is, in terms of quantity of nutrition, I think the pendulum is swinging, right? We've already seen the SCCM and Aspen recommendation, which is to get to goal quickly, right? Within the first one or two days, especially in those who have high nutritional risk. But the recent Aspen recommendation is different. It says do low dose nutrition in the early phase of critical illness. The caveat here is that we just don't know when patients transition between the early and late acute phases of critical illness. But it would not be unreasonable during the first week of critical illness to prescribe and deliver low calorie nutrition, whether it's trophic or whether it's hypocaloric and you maintain the protein, which we'll talk about in just a minute here. So in summary, for this second part of this talk, yes, both enteral and parenteral can provide calories during catabolism and can increase you know, protein uh, synthesis but it's really restricted dose uh, enteral nutrition that is thought to preserve the gut integrity and perhaps main, you know, mitigate gut dysfunction, which can then reduce inflammation and maintain gut uh, immunity. This is just a, a, a portion of the story here though. So you might be asking, well, what's the role then for parenteral nutrition, early exclusive parenteral nutrition? And I would say to you that if you have a patient who is malnourished at onset and you cannot or will not use the gut, um, those are the patients that you may want to think about doing parental nutrition. And the two large recent randomized control trials, the calories, the Nutria 2 trial, um, effectively are saying that parental nutrition is not only feasible, but it's safe, right? Historically, we think that parental nutrition is associated with a lot of, say, bloodstream or metabolic complications. But these two studies have found that better um, use and, and care for uh, ICU, uh, excuse me, central venous lines um, perhaps have allowed for less complications with parenteral nutrition. Again, malnourished patients early, early on with a slow, you know, ramp up. Let's get back to our case. Remember our 50-year-old guy, aspirated, pneumonia, hypoxemic respiratory failure, septic shock, um, we think he's got some malnutrition based on these historical features that we see here, along with this drop in BMI. Again, he got some fluids and he was started on trophic dose EN at a rate of 20 mLs per hour. And so now let's speculate a little bit on the role of protein in critical illness. And this will be the final uh, part of this talk. So let's, um, let's ask a couple of questions. If you stopped eating right now, in what order would your body utilize substrates? Let's take about 10 seconds to try and answer this one. Okay. What about during critical illness? In what order does the body utilize substrates? Okay, so before answering the question, let's get back to the, to the phases of critical illness. So far, we've said that 
nutrition may revert, may allow us to close our caloric debt a little bit. That's often brought on by hypercatabolism. It may um, help ameliorate or maybe prevent some of the gut dysfunction that we identify, but we need further data on that. But a fourth thing that we see that starts in the early and late phase, acute phases of critical illness is proteolysis, okay? This is gonna be really, really important. But let's go back and answer our question for just a minute. So if you starved yourself right now, right? Um, assuming you're not sick, okay? Your body goes into a hypocatabolic state. So lipolysis preserves lean muscle. And then we keto adapt, which then spares, you know, glucose as well. So the order is glucose, fatty acids, but then proteins, right? Your muscle mass is the last thing to go um, if you were to starve yourself right now. But in critical illness, it's glucose, protein, and then fat. And it's because of this hypercatabolic state that proteolysis is the rule, and there's a resistance to anabolic signals. In fact, this happens because the metabolic response to stress activates neuroendocrine, inflammatory immune, adipokine, and GI tract hormones. And the consequence of this response is again, uncontrolled catabolism, but resistance to anabolic signals, but also proteolysis, which then translates into, of course, energy debt, which we talked about earlier, but also a negative nitrogen balance. And so some of you may have seen this study. This was done by Puttucherry and colleagues uh, about eight years ago. And this was 60 some ICU patients, mostly who had sepsis. And what they did was they took biopsies, muscle biopsies of the rectus femoris muscles, and they did ultrasounds on days one, three, seven, and 10. And here's what they found. The rectus femoris cross-sectional area, okay, decreased by about 5% by day three, almost 13% by day seven, and 17% by day 10. So within three days of ICU admissions, these septic patients lost 5% of their muscle mass as measured by the rectus femoris cross-sectional area. So what do the biopsies show? So histologically, healthy tissue is seen on day one. That's the top left, right? You can see the nice outline of the sarcomeres. They're nice and a bright pink. But by day seven, you see muscle necrosis and cellular infiltration. In fact, if you look at figures C and D, the infiltrate was something called CD68 positive immunostating, suggesting that it's macrophages that are, uh, that are um, uh, invading the muscles. So at this point, what you're effectively seeing is not only is there a quantitative defect in the muscle, but because of this cellular infiltration, the authors postulate that there was a qualitative defect in muscle as well. And a subsequent paper they produced showed how bioenergetics of the muscle were altered as a result of this qualitative defect. So proteolysis, again, is the rule. And so why are we focusing on muscle? Well, we're doing so because, you know, as you all know, mortality from critical illness is increasing. This is data over almost the last, you know, 40 years from, you know, multiple randomized control trials. And what you can see here is, is that, again, mortality rates, you know, have decreased. In other words, ICU survivorship is increasing. And so if they're not dying, what happens to all of our patients when they leave our ICUs? And many of you know this data. 
Survivorship post-ICU is plagued by physical complications that impact quality of life. And this is part of the post-intensive care syndrome or PICS. And even up to five years, there's significant disability that impairs activities of daily living. And these physical complications include muscle weakness, fatigue, neuropathies, uh, diminished ambulatory ability to ambulate, and then of course, uh, impaired activities of daily living, which again, all translate into reduced quality of life. And so what do we know so far about protein? We said that proteolysis is a rule. We know that patients are often in a negative nitrogen balance. We know that mortality is decreasing and survivors have, again, acquired sarcopenia or loss of muscle mass, which then perhaps translates into physical limitations that impairs their quality of life. So intuitively, you might say it makes sense then to deliver protein, but then really how, when, what type, you know, and, and how much. And for the purposes of this talk, I just want to focus on how much. So if we want protein to ultimately lead, you know, lead to muscle buildup, which will then get patients off the ventilator, perhaps save their lives. You know, we need to follow this biologic thread all the way back to meeting nutritional you know, targets, okay? We, we, we wanna make sure that it follows, follows a biologically plausible trail here, really starting with an improvement in nitrogen balance. So let's see what data we have for protein uh, in critical illness. So this is data from a group in um, Sweden where they deliver protein through multiple methods, enteral and parenteral, and they see, and they follow in the body, and they see what happens to the amino acids as well. And what you can see here is that when protein is delivered on the x-axis, okay, whole body protein balance improves. And if you can see that the knuckle, right, the knuckle of where it kind of improves is right around like this one to 1.3, you know, uh, grams per kilogram uh, per day, okay? The figure here on the right effectively shows that as you increase protein delivery, it doesn't become oxidized, meaning it doesn't go to waste, right? But let's take this with a grain of salt, and here's why. Improvements in whole body protein balance does not elucidate which specific proteins are affected or whether any lean body mass or muscle mass is preserved. It's even possible the non-beneficial proteins are produced. I, I do have to throw that caveat out there. It's important because just because our patients utilize it doesn't mean it's going towards building muscle, which is what we ultimately want. And it varies from patient to patient. So for example, um, a colleague uh, in Tennessee um, looks at protein dose in trauma patients. And this was a prospective study evaluating 252 patients in mostly in their 30s and early 40s. And the idea is that trauma patients require more protein to achieve nitrogen balance. As you can see by the stepwise uh, increase from left to right uh, in protein intake. And in fact, positive nitrogen balance was achieved with more than two and a half grams per kilogram per day in these mostly young patients. So we use data to make inferences. On the x-axis, we want to have a strong magnitude of outcomes. So we want things to save lives, for example. And we want that to be supported by a high level of evidence on the y-axis. And so I've painted the ideal on the top right-hand corner of this figure that you can see here. And so what do we have in terms of data for protein? Well, if we start with low quality evidence, low magnitude of outcomes, we can see that protein dose does enhance nitrogen balance. And here are some of the studies that support that. It does um, 
look at muscle, there are studies that look at muscle mass and what it does for muscle mass. There are randomized trials that look at protein dose and function. And then the greatest amount of studies that looked at mortality are observational in nature, both retrospective and prospective uh, studies that looked at observational. But we lack that ideal study, right? The one that looks at protein dose and its outcome on the primary outcome of mortality. And using data from these studies, as well as some of the um, laboratory findings that 1.2 to 1.3 is where you start seeing a positive nitrogen imbalance, the guidelines recommend starting at 1.2, but getting all the way up to two uh, in certain patient populations. So they give a wide range of protein doses. So what's actually happening? Even though we're supposed to be delivering 1.2 to 2 grams per kilogram per day of protein, what's actually happening? This is a international nutrition survey by a colleague in Canada. And this was conducted um, over five years. And this was from 2014, where they had over 700 ICUs from around the world. And they basically said, you know, tell us about your nutrition practices. Tell us about um, how much protein and calories you're delivering. And what they found is that on average, people are actually adhering to the guidelines. They're, set, they're prescribing about 1.3 grams per day. And the high range of 3.8 grams per day is done in say, for example, burn patients, right? Who are just very, very catabolic in nature. So this is how much is being prescribed. So the next question is, do all patients who get prescribed 1.3, how much is actually delivered? And so if we look only about half is delivered in real world practice. So protein delivery is low. And what you can see here is that the amount delivered in the first three days of critical illness is around 60%. And most of it is done enterally, for example. And so what are barriers to protein delivery? Why is it that we're not able to deliver protein if this is what our guidelines tell us and we have a plethora of data to support that? Well, let's look at pro uh, provider related factors. So maybe the belief that protein is harmful in certain populations. We summarize data um, in patients who have kidney injury, who are on renal replacement therapy. And there's three take-home points uh, from this slide. Um, the first is that um, if you look, patients got up to two and a half grams per kilogram per day of protein, okay? The second is that with up to two and a half grams per kilogram per day of protein, uh, there was safety. Right? So it was safe, uh, meaning it wasn't met with any harm in these studies. And then the third finding is that there was enhanced nitrogen balance with higher protein dose. So oftentimes we think that patients with renal failure who are on renal replacement therapy should get lower you know, protein doses. But these five studies, one of which was a randomized controlled trials, you know, show us otherwise. And so what are some other barriers? Well, I will submit to you that it's even though we have a plethora of evidence, it's really the quality of evidence that limits us delivering um, you know, the um, higher protein doses that are recommended. And in fact, if you look at the quality of evidence that informs the actual recommendation from the guidelines, um, it's very low. And that's why I think there's a wide range of acceptability for protein doses you know, right now. And you know, we want RCT and systematic review-based evidence that are gonna inform clinical recommendations. In fact, we would never make um, recommendations off of just say case series, which really um, contain lots of bias, right? And so most of our studies that we have for protein fall into this middle category, which is mostly observational in nature. But 
you know, I know I told you that we do have RCT level data, right? And so let's look at these RCT level data um, and, and see what we, can, what we can at least extrapolate from this. Here are five randomized control trials that have tested protein doses. Again, these are small studies, okay? They have varying populations such as renal failure. They have low methodologic qualities and they have variable reporting outcomes. And if you look, they have, with the exception of the Clifton study, all of them never achieved more than one gram per kilogram of separation between the two groups. And if you look at the primary outcomes, they were intermediate outcomes at best. They looked at things like changes in sulfur score or your hand grip strength at discharge, you know, for example, or look at six month physical uh, functioning uh, as in the Allen Strupp, you know, study. And when these trials were put into a meta-analysis, um, there was no difference, meaning it didn't favor a low or high dose of protein. And so we went back and we looked at other contemporary nutrition RCTs and we asked what were they doing with their protein in, in those studies? And what we found are three key things. All trials prescribe the recommended protein dose. That's the target that you see right there, both in the intervention and control arms. The second thing you can see is that in most trials, the amount delivered did not equal the amount prescribed. In fact, look at that top row, the omega trial. The intervention group just got 0.13, right? Which is about 10% of their protein target uh, for the low dose protein uh, target. And in fact, the only trial I got anywhere close to you know, that one gram separation between the arms was the nephroprotect study. And so I would ask you, are we in a state of equipoise? Meaning there's no good answer for protein dose. Is it 1.2 or is it two or higher? And when we think about, um, when we think about equipoise, we're effectively saying that there's no better intervention present. There's no good basis for which a choice can be made. Because again, we have some data that supports low doses and then we have some data that supports um, you know, higher doses of protein dose. And so what do we do when we're in a state of equipoise? If we think about our just day-to-day -day ICU practice, um, look at all the bound, look, look at how wide our boundaries are um, for ICU standards of care. And multiple randomized controlled trials have been conducted when there's equipoise. And you might notice some of these trials, for example. So some examples include, do I do direct laryng laryngoscopy or do I um, you know, use a CMAC to intubate my patients? Do I use a ramp or do I not use a, a ramp? Do I uh, you know, uh, pre-oxygenate or do I not you know, pre-oxygenate with you know, a bag mask, for example? And so the question is, why can't we do the same thing for protein dose to resolve some of this equipoise? And in fact, there's five studies that are underway that are looking at this. And the largest one is gonna come out of uh, Canada. And um, I'm a part of this study and we've already enrolled over 900 patients. And effectively what we're doing is randomizing patients to under 1.2 grams or more than 2.2 grams of protein per day. Again, to get that separation in groups to see if a lower or higher dose actually makes a difference in 60 day mortality, which is what we're looking at in this uh, particular study. Um, we're approaching two o'clock here. And so what I'll do is I'll just um, quickly go through uh, a, a few slides, but this slide is just to say that all societies, at least SCCM and the Europeans agree that, you know, starting with 1.2 to 1.3 based on the data that we actually have. Um, the other issue that we have, and many of you uh, see this as well, is immobility, right? Protein alone is not enough. We got to exercise our patients and, and what we see with immobilization 
contributes to muscle disuse and atrophy as well. And in fact, this slide is from a colleague of mine. And what this is a point prevalence study that they did. And, and they effectively see how much patients are mobilized. And you can see it in our ICU is the same. We're probably under 10% on any given day in patients who get out of bed or even to the edge of the bed. And that's important because of, of this. When we deliver protein, so this is you and I, for example, if we take a protein load, um, then what you can see from the yellow, yellow line there that forms the green under the area under the curve, our ability to synthesize protein goes up, right? You get a protein load, which is those arrows there. And then what happens? Your ability to synthesize protein goes up. Well, it turns out that if you exercise and take protein, the ab ability to increase your protein load goes up even higher. But look at this graph right here. Anybody know, can they take a stab at maybe what this is? So this is muscle protein synthesis with anabolic resistance of aging and muscle disuse. So if we don't use our muscles, you can take all the protein you want, right? But the anabolic signal is gonna favor um, not providing any increased protein production. And this is probably what happens in our critically ill patients that we just provide protein to, but we don't move them around. And in fact, the priorities in critical care nutrition research, the top three priorities that you can see here are to test protein dose coupled with exercise. And there's two trials underway right now that are looking at that. And the one on top um, is coming out of the University of Vermont where they're um, exercising people with a, a bike at the end of the bed, having them cycle while they're infusing protein into them and they're looking at six minute walk distance. So putting this all together, critical illness exists in phases. There's an early acute phase followed by a late acute phase. And it's probably somewhere in that first week of critical illness. And what we would effectively recommend at this point is to start slow, do restricted feeding, trophic, hypocaloric feeding based on the available evidence that we have. And with a slow ramp up, and the reason for the slow ramp up, remember those five reasons that we talked about, endogenous glucose production, more complications, autophagy, mitochondrial dysfunction, and then risk for refeeding syndrome. And then once you get past that acute phase of critical illness, that's where we're really starting to um, you know, have an anabolic response to the macronutrients that we give. And these are the patients that you obviously wanna target 100% of their prescription, but perhaps also increase their protein dose as well. Thank you very much for your attention.